So instead of applying it to your uh, wife, you know, just think about it in, in other ways. It, it's, it's, you know, if you're single and you're not a loving guy now, what the heck makes you think when she takes a wife and you become a loving guy? <laughs> yeah, this is a slippery slope. Uh, you need to be a guy that's loving today. Yeah. That's what we've been talking about with discipline too, right? If you're single, it's a great opportunity with roommates or with other people, or living with your parents, whatever, to uh, really be working on those things. Um, so when you get that forever roommate, right? All right, let's. Why do we that? Hopefully, we'll thank God about that, huh? But let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for these men. Lord, um, I pray that there would not be a, an overwhelming discouragement in this, but Lord, where there is challenge, I pray that you would draw near to them and supply them with grace and power from you to be able to be the man that they need to be, that I need to be. Lord, we look to you. Um, praise God that we are on this path, Lord. We thank you. We know we have not arrived. We know we are not at the destination. We have not hit the target yet, but we are in the air flying, and that is solely by your grace. And I pray, Lord, that um, what we talked about today and the homework we have and the lesson we talked through would only be would only serve to advance us further. Lord, we pray for our wives that they would love the gospel, that they would love you, Jesus, the one revealed in the gospel, that they would have the gospel be at the center of their marriage with us as much as we want to have it at the center of our marriage with them. So Father, help our wives to become even more committed um, to being gracious, being patient, and being kind in our marriages. Lord, help us to be that towards them. And may our marriages point away from ourselves to Jesus and the church as we live together in a way that honors you. Help these guys who are single, Lord, to um, prep their lives now in such a way that um, when you do bring marriage, it will be there will be less of a, of a, of a bumpy transition. The transition will be more seamless. Father, for those who do not yet have kids, Lord, as you bring them into their family, Lord, give them wisdom how to care for their kids. And for those who are on the other end of life whose kids are leaving the home and are out of the home, Lord, I pray that you would give them wisdom with their grandchildren. Help them to step into the lives of us and the church who have kids still at home and give them fruitful ministry among us, helping us see what we need to see before our kids leave. Lord, just thank you for the time and the fellowship together that we had with each other and the fellowship we could have with you as we look at your word. You are a great God, and we need you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for coming. Appreciate you. April 9th, down at that end of the campus. If you got homework, bring it up. Uh, get it to whoever your guy might be and uh, your smoker leader. And we'll try to hand out back some homework to you as well. Oh, sweet. Very good. Thank you very much.
a, uh, a little uh, programming note. Our next time together after this is uh, Saturday, April 9th. Um, you can look at that on your schedule. It's On your schedule, it's going to look just like a regular old build. Um, we're going to be talking about Discipline 6, uh, the church's biblical vision and gospel purpose. But what we're going to do is we're going to be meeting with the ladies in Wellspring that morning, and I'm going to be teaching that to the, to the women also. Now, they gather down in Barnes Hall, um, so if you don't know where that is, got to go see where would I have you park that morning. You can park where you do here, but I would try to get towards the, the west end of campus. Um, and I recognize the number of ladies who are in Wellspring doubles this group. There's like 60, 70, I think, 60. So, same time, 6.30, because they start at 7, but we're starting at 6.30. Um, and it'll be down in Barnes, and um, we'll have the women on one side and the men on the other. <laughs> So even if your wife's there, you just yeah. But uh, we'll all be there. There'll be just like there'll be some food to eat and um, stuff to drink, all that good stuff. And then what we'll do is we'll take a break and we'll come back down here and we'll do our small groups down here and the women will do their small groups and that's their last wellspring. Um, but we will have three more after that yet. So just letting you know, uh, next week when you, and we'll we'll have one of us standing down here so that when you come in all sleepy eyed, forgetting. Even though we sent you an email, and we'll direct you on down. But uh, you can park if you want to uh, park along this side out over here and stay towards the front and just walk around the front of the building, and you'll be fine. Okay. All right. Hey, why don't you take a look at your packet first? Um, I'm going to this morning skip the back of your notebook. I know, it's crazy, but we're going to skip the back of the notebook this morning. But I want you to take your paperclip stack of stuff. And I want you to, um, you can set your notes for today aside. You've got two pages of those. Uh, but set those aside for now and take out the other sheet of paper that looks like it has uh, some, it's a diagram. This is what I tried to represent for you on the board last time that we talked about kind of impromptu was, you know, spontaneously it came up. We just talked about the Christian life. And what I want to do is I want to take just a couple of minutes to walk through it again, not, not in the, the same amount that we did last time. Um, but I, I think this requires some explanation because there are some things on here that I didn't draw. That I, and as I was talking with you last time, I didn't even know how to represent I wasn't sure how I was going to represent it the way that we did it here. So I want to walk through that with you. But before we do that, I want to pray because we're going to be talking about some great stuff here and it would be good to... Um, acknowledge God's presence, our need for Him, and uh, so let's pray. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your saving power in the gospel. Thank you for causing us to be born again, as Peter says in First Peter 1. Thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Thank you for bringing about a, a, a new identity that we could not... Um, transition ourselves into. Thank you for getting rid of the old man 
something we could not do. We cannot separate ourselves from ourselves, what we had made ourselves into by sin. God, you are just powerful. And thank you that um, what is mortal and perishable will put on immortality and imperishability when you come again for us and we are glorified. We will be able to handle your presence. We will be able to, in these bodies, take in eternity. And these bodies will be freed from sin in entirety, from the inside out, outside in, an unmixed condition that is only ever, all the time, pleasing to you. That's powerful. We look forward to that day. We thank you for planting the seed of all of that in us now in the gospel. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved by you and your power in the gospel. Now be with us this morning, Lord, please. We acknowledge your presence with us. We confess to you our need for you. We are weak men. We are flawed men. But we gather together in fellowship with one another in hopes that we might together fellowship with you through your word. So please come and meet with us. Let us not miss anything in your word. Speak to us, God, through your word. And we will humble ourselves and listen. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Let's talk about this just for a moment. Basically, remember, we talked about last time that there are... um, Uh, different ways to look at the, the, the Christian life, being saved, or just human life, even outside of salvation. Uh, we talked about this as you when you were unregenerated. And we said this is an unmixed condition. That's on your left side of your paper, right? Then, God regenerates you. He saves you. He transforms you. This is a mixed condition. This is unmixed. Um, there's actually two of these over there on yours. Right? Okay. This is um, glorific. Uh, so Label as unregenerate. This is, uh, and you've got several here. I can't even begin to draw it all, but this is glorification, right? Yeah. Yeah. The next one's glorification. This one over here? Yeah. Okay. Okay, and I won't draw it anymore just so that it somewhat tries to match. So you've got three different expressions here inside. The the rim that goes around the outside is is, is an attempt to um, show the relationship between the inner man and your members. Okay? It's not a rigid separation. I am who I am. Uh, I'm not just who I am, inner man. I am who I am in the flesh also. But it's, it's a visual way to try to show that there's uh, 
there are some distinctions that you need to hold that we need to hold all together. This is who I am. Before I was saved, this is who I am. I wasn't just this person on the inside, and I wasn't just this outer layer of physical being. This is who I was. And all of it from the inside out was in total agreement with each other. There was no conflict between my inner man and my outer man. My inner man loved sin, and my members hand, I handed my members over as weapons for unrighteousness. No disagreement at all. Unmixed. This is the old man. This condition was crucified. This nature was crucified with Christ. And the old things passed away. It is impossible for you to be in this condition again. By the grace of God, by the power of the gospel, you cannot be this way again. Because that condition is dead. It is gone. You now are a new creation. Here's what you are. You have been renewed. You've been given a, a new identity. That This is the whole new identity. This is completely different than this. This is the old. This is the new that has come. Now, you and I might think what we would have done is I would have gone from here to here. Pure on the inside, pure on the outside, from no disagreement between the inner man and the outer man here to no disagreement between the inner man and the outer man here. That is not the way that God did it. He saw that there was a way that he was going to bring glory to himself by there being a fight. Right? And so, this is the new creation. This is the new condition you are in. It is completely unlike the condition before, in that now there is complete disagreement between the way that your members want to go and the way you and your inner man know you should go. Right? So, what we do now is we are called to renew this inner man daily. Renew your mind. And that's why it's kind of shaded partly in and out. I probably should even have it maybe less. And what Smed was trying to um, express with there being the, like these notches on the outside <coughs> is that, like Romans 6 says, you now you are not supposed to be handing your members of your body. And, I, and we would see that as like everything from your physical members to like your, your faculties, your mind, your thinking, your, uh, your eyes, your, what you take in. You shouldn't be handing those things over to unrighteous anymore, unrighteousness anymore, but to righteousness. And so that's why there's three uh, circles inside. The first one on the left in the middle here shows it, it, it's pretty gray. It's when you first are transformed, there's not a whole lot of difference between just looking at the man and what you see here on the outside. Oh, but man, it's completely different on the inside. And it is in a continual process of being renewed, being transformed. And that's why on the outer rings you see less and less gray. Because more and more and more, your members are not being handed over. Hopefully, Lord willing, this is the way it's supposed to be, right? We are supposed to grow in our sanctification. By the way, by, by showing in the last ring that there's like only two notches on the outside, we're not trying to say that there's a possibility for perfection. Okay, we're just showing that it's progression. Okay, of going from there is sin in my life to I am trying to do battle against sin and conquer it. Um, 
in there. When we die, you notice there's no ring because the body is separated from the inner man and all we are is the inner man when we die in Christ. Now, we believe that the scriptures teach that there's a rapture. Um, we believe that the scriptures teach that there is a millennium, a, a thousand-year reign of Christ, uh, an eternal state that will come in, in which there's a new heaven and a new earth. Christians, in this condition, when Christ comes back, are raptured and they skip death. We go from this to this when we meet him in the clouds and we are with the Lord forever in the air. Or we meet him in the air. I mean, thus we are with the Lord forever. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. We go from here to there. We will be translated. There will be this, this what is mortal. This can die. This which is perishable. It, it can decay. This will put on what cannot decay. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 57. It will, the immortality will put on immortality. Perishable will put on the imperishable. Okay? Those who are dead in Christ will be raised first, 1 Thessalonians 4, and they will be this, and then we will meet them in the air. Okay? Does that make sense? Um, unmixed, mixed condition, death. And this is obviously again unmixed. Okay. Sanctification going on here. Okay. Where on this is justification? Where on this is justification? not. It doesn't represent justification on here. This process in the middle, you can't improve on justification. We're not visualizing justification on this. Because justification is, at this point, what you are will finally match what? What you were declared righteous in God's eyes. But that's not this. Righteousness, being declared righteous by God is perfect. You cannot improve upon that. It's not flawed in any way. It doesn't need time to develop it. It is a once and for all declaration by God over you that he sees your sins forgiven and that he sees the righteousness of God in Christ in you. Okay? And we're not representing that on this chart. We could, but we haven't done that yet. And so the hard part is, is, is we know that we possess, when do we possess justification? Over here? No. We possess it here. But we get mixed up between justification and sanctification all of the time. Don't we? In fact, that's where the great heresies take place. And the confusion in the Christian life is when I start thinking that my justification is a process by which I am putting off more and more sin and putting on, and that's not justification, it's not a process. Or, I take my sanctification and I basically say, whammo, because I was justified, I am now, in fact, I don't even sin anymore. And believe me, there are Christians who have that position. That they do a whole lot less sinning. Their sanctification somehow looks more like their justification 
uh, in totality than, than a, a progressive putting off and putting on. Okay? Questions? Please, uh, this is, this, the, the chart that you have will be up on the build website um, where all the rest of your uh, diagrams and homework and stuff is. Uh, I asked Smed about this and, and we're not going to make this more broadly known. If, if you've noticed, our, our build stuff is not like right on the front page saying, woohoo, here I am, everybody, come get it. And the reason for that is, is because uh, build for us is not something we're making available to just every man out there. It is so tied to a local church, this local church, that we're not hiding, we're not going to make it impossible for people to get it, but we just, we're, we're, build, we want it to be applied to you guys. We're not, I don't think God's given us a ministry where we need to go out and to change evangelicalism. Um, it needs to change. But I'm not sure, until God makes a little bit more clear that that's what our role is, <laughs> we're just going to keep it for you guys. This will be on that part of Build's website. Um, don't take it and broad advertise it, because what Smed and I want to do is we want to keep testing it a little bit more. It just kind of came out prematurely, not even, not even prematurely, it came out wonderfully, so last time together, it was fun to talk about it. Wanted to give you a copy of it. You've got it. Uh, it's available on the web. But uh, I encourage you, I would ask for you guys to test it. Keep this in your Bible. And as you come across a passage, take it out and open it and go, now where is this passage? On this? Does this chart able to hold and reflect this passage? And if it, you know, every chart falls short. You can't, no one chart, no one illustration can say it all, right? So help us see where it, it uh, is not helpful or where it needs some adjustments, okay? Any questions or thoughts or comments, guys? TJ. Oh, what, what the new one is? Our Grace Bible Church? Oh. The, where, where's the homework? Great question. Um, if you go to um, gbcaz.org, right, our website, and you go over to your the right-hand side of the page, there's a message resources button. Click on that, and then it's going to show several different things that you can go to. Uh, Leviticus, Luke, Ephesians, Genesis, um, I, I, several different things. There's a sentence at the bottom of that that says, for other resources, click this link. That's what you have to click. So for all I know, you guys haven't known that all year, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, you click on that, and it'll pull up build and H3 and, and things like that. Okay? So uh, you don't need a, a special code or anything beyond that. Just have to find that little sentence there. <laughs> sorry. Nick? Uh, just the, the unmixed, you've got unmixed on each end. Yeah. I, I, I understand that, but can you elaborate on that just a little bit? Um, yeah. Um, what is in the heart that is evil is what proceeds out of the heart and is evil. Uh, what Jesus taught, like in Mark 7, uh, what is the inner condition matches the outer condition. Uh, there is no good. There is no one good. There is no one righteous. Not even one. 
It's an unmixed. There's no conflict between what a sinful, unregenerate man wants in his heart and in his desires and what he expresses in his uh, outer members. He is a slave to sin. Sin dominates him. There's only one will being expressed here in his life, and it is the will of sin. So we're, we're unmixed in a sense from God, if you will, totally and completely depraved. Yeah, this is an unmixed condition separate from God in rebellion. Let me do this. Unmixed in rebellion against God. Okay? Unmixed in. You could say obedience, but I. Uh, yeah, well, we'll use that just for the sake of using it for its eternal state. In obedience to God, no conflict here. Right. When we are, when the, when we have the glorified condition with the uh, the outer man has been resurrected, um, there is no conflict. In a state way of saying something, I guess that we're we're totally mixed with the Lord. Yeah. Well. What do you mean by that? Yeah, there's no. I, I. I would only in, in this case I would only use mixed in regards to showing a, a combination between sin and righteousness. Okay. Now, if you want to, you know, redefine for other purposes, a I am mixed in with God finally and fully. You can do that, but that'll only be in conflict with the way that we're using mixed here. So that would be helpful. In Nick says, when he said totally depraved, so if you put verses there like Genesis 6 5 and Romans 3 23. Yeah, I would do 3 23. I'd also do the uh, 3, is it 10? And following, where he's quoting Psalm 14. First Corinthians 15, 50, and following Romans 6. Um, Philippians 1. Where is it with Paul? Remember you talked about Philippians 1 where Paul says, I would rather be caught. I don't know if I, I would stay and he's profit for you if I stay, but I to, to live as Christ, to die as game. He wants to go to. He wants to go to this condition. Philippians one twenty one. Okay, so that's why I say read your Bible, and as you come across passages, see where it looks like it fits. And if you've got questions, ask um, Smith. <laughs> Tom. What about uh, on the end? Can um, I want to see if I can think of where to find this? Give me give me one second to just look at something here, okay? <laughs> you know what? We would all be better if you did. 
Okay, go to Luke 11:13. Can this man do anything good? That's not. That's not a. Uh, it's only a half. That's one of those questions where it's the answer is uh, it depends. Okay. According to Romans 3:10, he cannot do anything good, and we believe that, and we know what is meant by Paul when he says there is no one righteous, no one does good, not even one. We know that. But notice, you know this passage here in Luke 11. Jesus is teaching about prayer. Uh, go back to verse 11. Now suppose one of your you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, now watch this, being what? Evil, know how to give what? Oh, is that a conflict with Romans 3? No. In what, okay, then how would you explain that, Amri? How do these two passages reconcile together? Without uh, undoing what the other one said. I think that in Luke 11, he says the gifts are good. Okay. It's the first thing that stands out. He doesn't say that the acts are good, um, but he does say, like, you were, you were evil, um, you know, obviously seek to harm his son if he asks for something good. So, humanly speaking, there's some, you know, Acts that are charitable that you seek to benefit another person. Um, <clears throat> the gifts are good, but before God, uh, it's not done out of faith. So, and yes. 14, and anything that is not a faith is sin. Is sin. So that, that's that's a good explanation. What is going on when um, an unregenerate father gives holds his little baby? And he puts the milk in his little baby's mouth. Is that a good thing? Yeah, it's a good thing. At, at one level, it's a good thing. When God looks at that, and he sees an unregenerate man giving his baby milk, he sees a man in rebellion against Christ, loving his sin more than he loves God, give his baby milk. That man is not good. His doing a good thing, being evil, did not change God's mind towards him. There's only one way that that man can become good. And it is not by feeding his baby a bunch of bottles of milk. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ and by faith being declared righteous. Okay? And Jesus makes that clear when he's talking about the the different people that are going to come before him someday. And there are those people who do say... Lord, Lord, you know, didn't we do mighty works in your name? We cast out demons, we did this, we did that, they're doing this list. And Jesus doesn't say, sorry, I didn't choose you. You know, bummer. You know, uh, you were trying to do all this good, and I just didn't choose you. But he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, of wickedness. He saw all their good acts, and it was just tinged with rebellion. And the only way you find yourself, that's, that's good, thanks Zach. The, the only way that you find yourself in, in conflict with that is if you impose on God our understanding of good, temporal, human-to-human things, and God must see good that way also. Then, now Romans 3.10 doesn't mean what Romans 3.10 means. So you have to have an interpretation that lets Luke 11 stand, and you have to have an interpretation that lets Romans 3 stand, and they're not in conflict with one another. Good 
means a, a certain degree and level of good in Luke 11 that man can do towards other man. In this case, his son or his daughter. The good spoken of in, in Romans 3, which is from Psalm 14, is uh, unrighteous before God, good, or lack of goodness. Amen. Uh, I have a question about Luke 11. Yo. Is, is Jesus saying that the acts themselves are good? Yeah, I or think. Or simply the gifts? I don't know if I would put it, I don't know how you would be able to. Uh, well, I, I see what you're saying. You're saying the egg is the gift, but the act of giving the egg is not good? It doesn't seem like it, yeah. perhaps. Yeah, you might. I, I suppose if you wanted to, you could draw that. You could get you know, pretty fine in terms of dividing the line. I don't know if that's what Jesus was necessarily trying to say. I, I think what Jesus is acknowledging is that evil people do good things to one another, good things as they see it, humanitarian things. Uh, and those and man should do that to me. I'm, I want man on this earth to do as many of those kinds of things to one another as possible. And I hope you do too. Because when we don't do that with each other, this is a dreadful place to live. Jerome. Well, they said that the, the Chronicles of Narnia, um, the witch witch gives that boy a little good snack and a little treat. But the whole Which man or men did God ever say, this is my beloved, in you I am well pleased? There's only one man that ever heard that. There's only one man that ever lived that caught Jesus' eye in that sense, where God would say, beloved, I'm well pleased. Everything outside of that, God's not... <clears throat> indifferent about <coughs> neutral towards unaware of he is in his holiness and in his righteousness very angry not blowing up in a temper like you and I do but controlled, measured perfect judgment against it already, the judgment already exists there's hell and his wrath is currently abiding on them. John 3.36 and Romans 1. It is real. So any good that we're going to do before God, where he would view us and whatever it is we are and do as a beloved one with beloved things that please him, it has to be in Jesus. We must be in Christ. Christ must be in me. Everything that I do outside of Christ, before Christ was in my life, everything before God, he is wrathful towards 
again, even as I'm feeding my little one a precious bottle because I genuinely, as an earthly father, don't want to see my son suffer. But it is a Christless thing I do. In my rebellion against God, I want my son to not suffer. So God is not pleased with that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it is true. I mean, in, in our Christless existence, the only person that we think about is ourselves. Um, but what I like to do is, is, and I don't want to minimize how wicked doing something selfishly is. That's wicked. But that's not why God is most wrathful. It's because I'm selfish. He's wrathful because he does not see his son. His son must be in me. And the whole reason why I'm selfish is because he doesn't see his son. The real offense is that Christ is nowhere to be found in my life. And I only, the only thing I'm going to do in that condition is do whatever I love all the time, as much as I want. Uh, Tom. Um, if this is the appropriate time, we, we may be getting off our time. Yeah. One thing I always uh, had a hard time understanding is when you get Hebrews 11, the This is not the same chart. Okay, I'm not trying to add this to the chart. Here's um, here's the cause. Okay. Put some key figures in here. Okay. got your New Testament and, and where we are today, and, and it continues, okay? God says very clearly here, uh, isn't it, uh, Genesis, in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. What God had revealed to Ad, or Abraham about himself and his promises to him, all Abraham could do is trust that God with what he had revealed. Abraham looked away from himself. He didn't trust in his own flesh, though it was dead, Romans, or is that Romans 4? Galatians 4. Though his body dead, it's Romans 4. Pretty sure it's Romans 4. Sorry. He, he looked away from himself. He's not trusting in an old man that he's able to make the, the, the promise come about. He's, he's trusting in God alone. He's He's looking forward to the promise that God is going to bring. And to the degree that it has been revealed to him, he's trusting in that God. And God says that's exactly the way that it is. That's the way I say it is by sinners looking away from themselves, trusting in the declaration of righteousness. 
as Moses comes, the law is added. The law goes underneath the Abrahamic covenant. This is the way that God saves. Moses doesn't offer now a new way to be saved through works. He brings a set of laws that go underneath Abraham's faith. Okay? Abraham's faith goes all the way to here and beyond. Paul talks about how we are even children of Abraham because of our faith, right? Moses' law is under that, and it went, in my estimation, according to Scripture, to here. Well, and you can even make a case for here. Okay, and we can talk about what happened here until <coughs> Acts 2. Okay. But <clears throat> Moses and all of Israel still had to put their faith in God and what he had revealed that he was going to do. Revelation keeps growing. And what God reveals he's going to do gets bigger and bigger. And Moses says, there's going to be a prophet who's going to come who's much like me. He believed every word that guy says. And so now they keep the, the God that they're putting their trust in, that they're looking forward to, is that they're trusting and God declares them righteous. You get along closer to David and God says, you know what, I, I have a promise for you, David. It's not above Mosaic law. It is, or I'm sorry, it's not above Abraham's promise. It is under it also. And it continues. And it continues. I have a promise for you. There will be one who will come from your family who will sit on the throne and he will rule forever. More and more revelation is coming. David trusts in this God who says he does these things and he's God is declaring righteous the whole way. All of a sudden, you get to your New Testament, and he is from the tribe of Judah. He is the son of Jesse, the son of David. And you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Now, the people who live in this era, right around Jesus... They're not looking forward. They're looking right in front of them at the one who is the son of David. Why is it that all the blind men in the Bible and the New Testament are the guys who get that he's the son of David? Bartimaeus, the, the blind man, there's other blind men earlier too. Son of David, son of David. The blind men see it. Now they're trusting in this one who has been revealed to be the anointed one, the Messiah. And now he has come. Now the... The apostles come and they say, um, hey, guess what, everybody? He came. So now their faith, you need to believe in the one who what? Came. So which way is their faith? Look back or look towards. It goes back. Now, are they declared righteous by their faith? Yes. But after Messiah came. See, Abraham trusted God. God revealed himself that he was going to come in Messiah. And he did come, his name is Jesus, and we still do the same believing that Abraham did, but we just have a whole ton more clarity of who he is. And so we look back, and now we're 2,000 years after that, and our faith goes back and looks to what God promised here, and it also looks forward to what he's continuing to promise also, because not all of his promises have been fulfilled yet. So what's the point? Old Testament saints looked which direction in their faith? Forward. Forward. We 
not excluding that there are some forward realities to take place that we look forward to, but primarily when it comes to Messiah, which way do we look? Faith. Which one is living by faith, and which one is living by another way? Nobody. Everybody's living by faith. Okay? Now, I don't know if your question also then encompasses James' view of works and faith. Um, the way to view that where there, there is no understanding in the Bible that men ever lived and were justified by works alone. It, it doesn't teach that. And James is not trying to teach that. James is teaching that before men, there is a certain justification that you gain. That men look at your fruit of your works and they see your justification. Okay? Um, but Romans 3 makes it very clear that there is a vertical justification that God does and God does alone. Whether men see it or not, um, if they have a chance or not, is not the issue. But if you are, if you have been declared right by God and you have been transformed by God, then indeed man will see a, a level of justification through your works, your, your fruit of your salvation that you do. Okay? So that's the way that I would understand that. And with that, we should probably turn the corner <laughs> and talk about loving our wives. Okay? So let's take our Bibles. Let's open them up to Ephesians 5, verse 22. And take your handout for today. And what I did for your homework, too, um, is actually something that Tom did last year for this one. And something that I did a, a, a couple of years ago. No, actually, I think these are all for you. Tom, these might be all of yours. I think so. Okay. What, what we're doing, um, what I want you to do, this seems like a lot of homework. I gave you three pages. And it is a lot of homework. Um, I don't think it'll take you a ton of time. But I, I would not wait until Friday night, April 8th, okay? Because you're going to want to ask your wife, and you're going to want to have your wife participate with you on, on these three. Um, but there's a great tool here, uh, the 50 ways to love your wife. Not to be confused with Paul Simon's 50 ways to leave your lover. But some good ways for you to think about your, uh, some different lenses through which to look at your relationship with your wife. So here they are. Okay? You guys can uh, work on those. Now let's talk about Ephesians 5. I'm going to read verses 22 down to verse 33 um, and encourage you, if you are able to, um, go back and listen to the message that we did when we were going through Ephesians on Ephesians 5, 25 down through verse um, 32. Okay, so let me read it for us here. Verse 22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. 
So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, if I have thought correctly here in this room, I believe, Zach, you are the youngest married man just beyond three months? Yeah. Who has been married longer than 20 years? Hands up. Who has been married longer than, let's just go right to 30 years? The two men at the table. Now it's going to be a duel. What, how many years, Ted, have you been married? 39. 39. Uh-huh. Well, in about seven hours, it would be 35. Okay. How many here are under the age of 35? Hands up high. These guys have been married longer than you've been alive. These are the men to spend time with. <laughs> that was not to discourage either one of you. That was to encourage the others <laughs> to go over this <laughs> These guys know married life, marriage life uh, longer than you've been alive. What a resource to the body of Christ. 35 years ago, the 26th was on Friday. It was? Okay, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And 35 years later, it's on a Saturday. (laughs) There it is. Okay, so um, regardless of where you're at, regardless of, is anybody here engaged to be married? Remember? You are, young man? Okay. So you guys, even if you're, you have no idea who the woman is, but you're looking forward to that. These are things that you want to keep in mind and I hope will be encouraging to you. Um, this is primarily a lot of application. So again, I want you to, to listen to the message uh, that we went through or do your own study on the passage. But let's talk about um, the husband's love for his wife needs to be first five things. Are you ready? Number one, cross-centered. The husband's love for his wife is to be cross-centered. Verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, your love, guys, is to bear the marks, is to bear the characteristics of Jesus' love for the church, and that is um, a self-giving love. He gave himself up for her. It's self-emptying love, it's self-sacrificing love, and obviously what Paul is talking about here, when he gave himself up, he's talking about the cross. That's language of, of, of sacrifice, of, of substituting yourself in the place of others and dying. Um, And that is where Jesus' love is most clearly seen. You can read through the Gospels and see Jesus loving on his disciples while he is is alive. I think you should study that and look at that and examine the love of Christ while he is alive um, so that you have an idea of how you can love Christ. But primarily the way that you are to look to your love must bear the characteristics of a man who is dying. Your love must bear the characteristics of a man who is dying. And I'm talking about Jesus. But you are dying also in your love for your wife. And here's a couple of things I want to draw to your attention about the love of Christ that that I love. Galatians 2.20. 
Notice what Paul says about the love of Christ there. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved us, me, and gave himself up for me. The very personal love that a believer like Paul, like you, like me, we can say Christ loved me. Yes, he gave himself up for the church. Think of it in a big way, the capital C church that has been the true uh, saved ones who have existed from the, the Pentecost chapter 2 of Acts on to our day. All of those, yes, he loves them in a very big, awesome way. He loves me too. And he loves you. Okay, it's personal love. Okay. Think about, um, look at Ephesians 5 verse 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love. Now watch this. Just as Christ also loved you. Now wait a minute. 525. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. It's the same, almost the same language. But he's not talking to husbands. He's talking to the church. Guess what, church? You, the love that you show to one another, guys, that the body of Christ shows to one another... That love is patterned after the same love that you as a husband offer to your wife. Or not after your, pattern after yours, but we're both looking to the same pattern is what I'm trying to say. Okay? You know what's really encouraging about this, guys? Especially those of you who are single. Love for your wife, once you finally do get married, does not require from you a love foreign to your experience when you were single. It's not that, well, I love people in the body. Yeah, but when I get married, it's a whole different kind of love thing. No, it's not. It's the exact same love. Except it is poured into one person in a way that it never was poured into. And there is an expression and an intimacy, obviously, in that love that is not shown anywhere else. But it is the same love. You're not being asked now uh, to all of a sudden start speaking Spanish when all you ever did was speak English. There's not a, a vivid distinction between the kind of love you showed the body and now the love you show your wife. That's encouraging. So guess what? You want to be prepared for marriage and loving your wife like Christ loved the church? Love the body of Christ. Love the members of the body. A husband's love for his wife is to be cross-centered. Number two, it is to be God-centered. Your love for your wife is to be God-centered. And you say, what do you mean? As opposed to, are you Are you ready? as opposed to husband-centered and even wife-centered. Your love is to be centered on God for your wife. Your love is to not be centered on you as you love your wife. And, and I'm going to say it, and then I'll clarify. Your love is not even to be centered on your wife that she gets. Focused on your wife, directed to your wife, yes. Originating from your wife? She's the center of gravity of the love that you show? No, God is. Let me tell you what I mean by that. And by the way, the cross will help you to empty, uh, to have a, a, a husband, it will empty you of a husband-centered love because you will have to die to yourself. Okay? But get this. Your um, love for your wife is not about you. 
and it's not about your wants most of all in your marriage, right? And I think it can even be said at one level that your love for your wife is also not about her and even her wants, so to speak, at a certain level, ultimately. Now, you are focusing your love and you are directing your love for your wife, but you are not driving your love by saying, honey, what do you want? How do you want to be loved? I think that's a good question to ask, to find out what she's thinking. But guys, there's a huge difference between doing that and saying, God, how do you want me to love my wife? Understand? You love your wife based on what God says to love your wife, not on what your wife says to love her. Now, where she is in agreement with God about how she should be loved, please do what she <laughs> says. There's no reason why not to. But be God-centered. Let me, let, me, let me illustrate this a different way in regards to parenting. Oftentimes, um, and Scott could speak to this much more so than me, but oftentimes Christians find themselves in need of a, a very necessary correction in the way that they parent because they realize they've been parenting with a child-centered parenting. The child is at the center of everything and all of the family and even dad and mom revolve around the child. And that we just can't, the child is like this magnet and everything just stops and everybody runs. You're just, the child is the center. I have seen Christians put forward a correction that says it should not be child-centered parenting it should be parent-centered parenting. Meaning, you're the parent, you do what, and, and look, is that right? Yeah, that, that, that's right to a degree, but you have to be really careful about what you mean by that and what you don't mean by that, because listen, I don't want my parenting centered on me. It needs to be God-centered parenting. That doesn't mean I'm not going to lead. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to be dad. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to be husband or whatever. It means God's going to be God as I be dad and husband. So you want to be God-centered, not just husband-centered or wife-centered in your love. Be God-centered. Your wife is not going to suffer if you become God-centered in your love for her. She might suffer if you are wife-centered in your love for her. It depends on where she's at. Do you understand? Number three, your love for your wife is to be holiness promoting. Holiness promoting. Verses 26 and 27 of Ephesians 5. Now watch this. Love your wives, verse 25, as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Here's what Paul does. Have you noticed this? Paul left marriage at the very beginning of Ephesians 5, verse 25. And he launched off into a discussion on what? Christ and the church. Because that's Paul. He is the, gent, uh, the, the, he is the uh, apostle who was given revelation of, of the church and Gentiles coming in, and this guy cannot stop thinking about the church. Verse 32, this mystery is great. I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about what this whole thing, the bigger reality is going on behind marriage. It's Christ and the church. Oneness of flesh. Wow, that is pretty cool. I'm not talking about a husband and a wife. I'm talking about a unity between a head and a body that's really Christ in the church. 
of which marriage is a small reflection of. So Paul's point here is, I think, in the, in the big scale, is his primary point that he puts forward is the church benefits greatly from Christ's love. What kind of benefit? Wow, it's so that um, he might sanctify her, so that he, Jesus, might have cleansed her, the church, by the washing of the water with the word, so that he, Jesus, might present to himself the church in all her, the church's glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. I think Paul's primary point is, look what the love of Christ does for the church. Husbands, love your wives as that, like that. Now, here's the big question. And I, I want to be I want to be careful about this, and, and I, I want to have a, a little bit of a dialogue about this with you guys because it is very common to hear a man, a husband, quote verses 26 and 27 specifically and apply it to himself as the husband. Look at verses 26 and 27. Is Paul meaning here to give a direct phrase-by-phrase correspondence? Christ did this, husbands, you do that. Christ did this, husbands, you do that. Next phrase. Christ did this for the church, husbands, you do this for the church, or for your wife. Christ did this for this ultimate aim, you do this for your ultimate aim for your wife. Is that his point, or is there something bigger going on that he's saying? I think there is no doubt that what Paul is trying to say, here, I'll give you, I'm just going to lay it out where, what, what I think is going on here. I think what Paul is doing is, I think he's flying at a 30,000 foot level. And I think he's saying, look at the way the bride of Christ, the church, benefits from his love. He did this, he did that, he did this, he did that. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. And I think his point is, generally speaking, your wife better be a, a better person a more holy bride as a result. That's one way, and I think that's, I'm very comfortable with that. But I am very uncomfortable when you try to take each individual phrase and say, and because Christ did this to his bride, I do this to my bride. Because now you're going to be actually saying things in verses 26 and 27, and I'll show you, that I don't think you want to be saying. That I don't think scripture says a man does to any other man. Okay, you want to see Mark first? Um, some some core teaching we got in our in our premarital counseling. Uh, I, I was still doing the math, and you said I've been married more than twenty years, and I got married in my hand. Taught this this passage is these huge, massive, incredible things you do for your wife. Uh, I, I I would give myself. I would step in front of the bullet out, give up my dreams, these massive, incredible things that I would do for this 21-year-old girl. Uh, but, but they forgot to tell us, uh, what would you do when it comes to parenting and budgeting and gossip and modesty? And, um, and, and it, it, uh, maybe somebody here sometime will be asked to step in front of the bullet for his wife. Yeah. Well, and listen, <clears throat> I want to I want to I want to apply maybe a little bit of a corrective to um, some common ways of thinking about what a husband does for a wife. But in doing that, I, I don't want to be heard as saying that 
your wife's holiness and, and growth in the Lord doesn't matter. It does. And I am sobered by the thought that is my wife 20, almost 21 years later, a more holy woman than she was before she met me? Or does she have more stumbling blocks to sin in front of her because of me? That's sobering, guys. My wife needs to be a more holy woman, and I need to have something to do with that. And I think that's what's being said here. However, what I want to do is I just want to show you how careful I think you still need to be with Scripture. <clears throat> okay? <clears throat> Look at verse 26. Let's say there is a one-to-one correspondence. Whatever Jesus does, that's what I do. Verse 26. So that he might sanctify her. First thing, who is the he? Jesus. Who is the her? The church. So the first thing you have to acknowledge is you're going to be applying a passage that's not even in reference to you. Okay? Secondly, let's suppose that it still means that it, the he is you and the her is your wife. Is it a biblical thought that one Christian sanctifies another? Can you look through your Bible and find in it anywhere where it says, this man sanctified that man? This person sanctified that person? Actually, you can. 1 Corinthians 7, but it's a whole different thing. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. The unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Um, but that's something completely different than what's going on in Ephesians 5 because we're talking about two believers showing something of uh, the relationship between Christ and the church, and here we have two unbelievers. That is as close as you will get in the New Testament to one man sanctifying another man. So how is it that a, a husband can sanctify a wife? The only other person that you are able to have a more, the most direct role in sanctifying is yourself. This man sanctifies himself, 2 Timothy 2, uh, the vessel who cleanses himself to be useful to the master, sanctifies himself. You, you can't sanctify your wife, guys. Um, your job as a man is to labor in such a way in her life so that Jesus sanctifies her as she's a part of this church. Okay? Let's take the next one. Um, having cleansed her... By the washing of water with the word. Having cleansed her. Okay, um, who is the her? The church. Um, so it's not your wife. But let's say that we thought it was your wife. Having cleansed your wife by the washing of the water with the word. Or we were going to apply it in such a way. Can you find anywhere... <clears throat> um, and by the way, in the Old Testament, yes, you will find some places where... A man will sanctify something he owns. You will find men sanctifying a day, consecrating a day, consecrating a gift. You will find man in the Old Testament cleansing himself and, and certain things in worship. But suppose there, uh, th this is the idea that you need to cleanse your wife by washing, by the washing of the water with the word. Um, is there anywhere in the New Testament where a man cleanses another man? Mark 7, 4, the Pharisees and all the Jews cleanse cups and bowls in their hands before they eat. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, we cleanse ourselves 
2 Timothy 2.21, this is the one I was thinking of. Uh, he, uh, the, the vessel cleanses himself. James 4.8, we are commanded to cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, you sinners. Um, but there is, it's, it's actually an unbiblical thought to think that you would cleanse your wife. Your job as a husband is to labor in her life in such a way that Jesus cleanses her by the washing of the water with the word. I can't wash my wife with the water of the word. I can read the Bible with my wife. I can pray the Bible with my wife. I can teach the Bible to my wife. I want to do all those things, but I'm not the one who's doing it. And I'm not going to justify doing that from this passage. Okay? Guys, spend time in the Bible with your wife. Okay? And, and applying the corrective here, I'm not saying don't be in the Bible with your wife, but I don't think this is the place to go to justify that. Do you understand what I'm saying? We want to be careful with God's word. It even gets more tricky here. Verse 27, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Who's the he? Jesus. Who's the himself? Jesus. Okay, so um, now if I'm going to apply that to my marriage, now I am presenting to me my bride in all of her glory. See, what we end up, at some point you know that this doesn't work on a, on a phrase-by-phrase correspondence. But what we do is we ignore these parts and we pick on the one that seems the most to justify. I need to be in a word with my wife. I'm going to wash her with the water of the word. Guys, find a better passage. Okay? Just find a better passage. And that's okay. Do that. But, but that's not the best place to go to there. You understand? Um, your wife's goal is to be presented to Jesus as a part of the church. And you labor to be a husband who will lay yourself out with Christ-centered love, God-centered love, holiness, aiming, initiative, husband initiative, all that stuff. You, you lay it out, as we're going to see here, okay? Um, so we could go on. Um, a husband's Christ-like love for his wife is going to have an overall concern with her holiness, okay? Uh, and I'm very comfortable with that. I think that's inescapable from this passage. I just don't think you can do a one-to-one correspondence here. So that's number three, holiness promoting. Did I ever tell you that? Number three, okay, holiness promoting. Now, what what questions, what clarification do you want? What concern do you have with what I said? Are you? I want you to be able to, to say, hey, I'm concerned about the implications of that. Um, any questions, thoughts? Concerns. I encourage you, if you chew on that and, and, and something concerns you, please call me or email me. But guys, I just I want you to be able to use scripture well. And I don't think you're going to be able to be consistent if you do each phrase by that. And by, by making that correction, again, I'm not saying that your wife's holiness is not what you're aiming for. You are aiming for her to be a better woman as a result of your love for her. But it, it's not you that's doing it. Okay. Derek. Uh, verse 25, you say that is synonymous, I guess. Like, you know, hand in hand. The just as Christ also loved? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even there, I think you have to take it at a general point. Paul's point cannot be, husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church and sacrificed himself at the cross. 
He's not calling you to go to a cross to die in the same exact manner that Jesus did. There, there is a comparison being made, and I'm granting that. I'm just very comfortable granting it at a general way because I think that's what Paul meant. I think Paul got distracted as he was going and started thinking about the amazing, intricate love of Jesus for the church and what it accomplished for the church. And I don't think his intent as he was doing that to say, and what I want you men to do is a one-to-one correspondence in every single same way. Because he would be, he'd be calling you to do things that he doesn't call Christians to do for anybody else anywhere. So I think his whole point is, as Jesus does for the church, you too. But don't try to make it walk on all fours at every single point. Do you understand? Is, is that seem is that hard, or are you guys okay? It, it seems consistent with all of chapter 5, uh, that they being, being in pairs with God, um, and fragrant aroma, and, and pursuing morality, and, and, and lack of greed. And, uh, it seems consistent that all of chapter 5 were called to imitate God and it's just one of one family example of imitating God. Okay. Scott, I yep. there's for me anyway, and maybe you guys this makes sense. I think one of the things that confuses marriage is we equate being married a long time and staying married uh, part of the Christian walk. And I remember trying to reconcile this. I have a brother who next month is married 40 years. He is not a Christian, but he's got this longevity in marriage. And I know I've counseled couples that appear that they really hated each other because they were married a long time. So I'm trying to reconcile because we elevate Christians who stay married a long time. And we live in a community with a lot of Mormons, and Mormons are married a long time. So all of a sudden, it's like, wait, listen, if being married for the rest of your life is our goal, then we don't look any different than the non-believer and Mormon that stay. So it has to be tied back to, in our longevity of marriage, how did we reward each other? How did we care for our spouses? Yeah, as, as you do your homework, do it with the goal. Thinking of the goal is not to stay married a long time. How do I bring glory to God in the midst of this season that He's got me? Because we, it's not enough to look just like the one that is not believer that's been married 40 or 50 years. Our call is something much higher than longevity. Yeah. But it's confusing because we look at the scheme. Yeah. To um, it, saying it another way, to be married a long time may not reflect anything of the church yeah. and, and its relationship with Christ. You can be married a long time to your wife and she not be a better woman as a result of your love for her. The, the way to guarantee long marriage is not by resolving to be married a long time. It is to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And you will secure a long marriage. Because if Christ can put up with us and continue to love us and keep us, you can do that with one woman, can't you? <laughs> Tom. Um, I, I was taught 
And that's that's being God-centered. God, what? And we'll talk about that in here. That's really good. Let's um, move on to number four. Your love for your wife is to be nurturing, absorbed. Nurturing, absorbed. You're to be absorbed with nurturing her. Verse, um, those words come in verse 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. And, And you are to love your wife as your own bodies. And again, what we talked about when we went through that is, let me tell you what's not being said. Not being said that Paul, Paul's not saying to the husband, hey guys, think about the way you love your body over here, your physical body. Think about the way that you do that. Uh, you don't hate your flesh, you don't do this, you don't do that. You you are um, you, you, you just care for your body in very natural ways. Now, keep that in mind. Now walk over here away from that. And now watch and, and now love your wife like you love yourself. That's not what he's saying. He is saying, you love your wife because she is your body now. You love her as if she is your body. You see, there's too much space between the one as an example that you use as a pattern as you walk over here away from it to go love your wife. And he's saying, no, the language doesn't allow that. He's saying, your wife now is your body. And that's his whole point here. Um... Husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. How do you, of course you love yourself. And what he's saying now is, well, when you love your wife, you're loving yourself. The only way that can be true is if she is your body. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also did the church. Now here's the pattern. Christ and the church, how separate are they? Well, we are members of his body. And now he quotes an Old Testament passage and he shows us as an apostle who's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he shows us that what was going on in God's mind way back in Genesis 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Why in Genesis 2 did God make it clear that a husband and a wife should become one flesh and actually are? Because he knew one day he was going to show a oneness of flesh between Messiah and his body that this one must be and for that reason the husband and wife need to be one flesh and we don't know that until Paul tells us but we've got that and that's where he says this mystery is great and I'm not talking about how a woman can become your body I'm talking about how the church becomes the body of Christ Paul has the church on the brain just can't get past it Now, nurturing, absorbed. Your body, guys, does not feel dissatisfaction. Your body does not feel emptiness. Your body does not feel hunger. Your body does not feel pain if you can help it. Right? It feels full. It feels satisfied whenever you possibly can do so. Your wife should feel the same way in her advancement towards holiness of life under your marriage, in your marriage. She should feel full under your leadership, not deprived, not neglected. She should feel cherished and nourished by your acts, by your words of love. We're not talking about a a worldly nourishment and nurturing, a material nurturing merely. It should include that. But we're talking spiritually here. She feels moved to greater holiness and God-centeredness through your cross-centered, God-centered holiness, promoting love. She feels well provided for A woman of God feels nurtured and cherished by that kind of man. She doesn't feel starved or deprived by that man. 
And my fear for myself, what I see in me is oftentimes I become a leech to my wife, sapping the very life out of her when I'm not careful. And I think you'll be able to do that as well if you're not careful. You want to be a life-giving source, a protection, a nourishment, an encourager, a cherisher of her in every possible way. Number five, your love must be husband-initiated. And we're going to look at verse 23 for this. It's in the instructions for the wife. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. I'll state the obvious for my own life, and then you can tell me if it matches yours. Uh, My propensity is to function more as any other part of the body first than as the head. But the head is what leads the body, gives direction to the body, provides guidance and, and, and initiative and leadership. The head leads and all the other parts of the body follow. And when your head is functioning properly in your body, it doesn't lead your body parts into danger. Your head, when it's functioning rightly, doesn't lead your body into neglect or abuse. The head leads and the head loves in a very protective way for the rest of the body. The body benefits when the head is working rightly, right? I find that to be true in my natural life. And no one else has that same role in your wife's life except you. God has done something very spiritual and amazing. You guys are one flesh, and her well-being and benefit and protection and supply has now been put in you, the head, to take care of. Not somebody else, not the church, not her dad, not your kids, not her best friends, you. And only you can do this and provide this for her. That's not to say that there's not benefit in fellowship with other places. There is. But nobody else is the head. You and I are the heads of our wives. Hey, Scott. Yes. I think we need to just pause for a second and observe here that this is one of the areas where our culture has it the most backwards. Whether it's entertainment or anything else, there are very few other places where cultural norms are so opposed to what God's design. And you see it on TV where the, the husband and the dad is always the doofus. The mom is sharp and she's intellectual and she's thinking right and the dad is just sort of dragging along. This passage tells us that that is wrong. The more and more we live in this culture, the more and more we see that the message of our community and our culture is opposed that's excellent. Scott, I so agree with you, and I'll tell you what, it uh, is so prevalent even in the church. I was sitting uh, with my grandkids watching uh, this little green box. And the husband's just a dude. The husband's not a leader, and the mom is, you know, she, she's the, the spiritual one in the house, and it's like, it's just a broken picture.
got our armor. And I tell you what, we must keep our armor on because everything to the core of us, for for many of us, is is not to take this role that God has given us. And and if you see in your life, I beg you, seek your life again, repent, confess it to God that that it's sin, because God is faithful, He's just, He forgives and He cleanses. And and this is at the fiber of Centered. I want to. I want to put two things that might appear at times to be um, in opposition with one another. Cross-centered, self-emptying, self-sacrificing servanthood. Is that in a, Is that a contradiction to husband-initiated? Is it possible? If I'm going to be cross-centered, where I'm going to die to myself, how can I then take up leadership? See what? Excellent point. Uh, those two things wonderfully coexist in Jesus who stripped himself down wrapped a towel around and did the servant task among the disciples and none of the rest of them would do and he did that as the one he actually says and his whole point is that in John 13 listen he says you call me teacher Lord and teacher you're right I am I'm the man um, if then I, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I gave you an example that you also would do it to one another. Um, these two things, he's the initiator, he is the husband, he is the, the head of the church, and he laid down his life for the church. You, you initiate as a husband to lead, and you are the one who is sacrificing yourself as you do it. They, they, they exist together. One does not cross the other out. After a week of lo- loving your wife this way, she will not be able to conclude that you, that, that you leading is all about you. And she will not look at a week of your leadership this way and go, I'm the princess running the show. She won't. What she will get a sense of is that my husband wants God at the forefront of my relationship with him and with God. And that's what you want. God-centered love. Um, number two, this kind of love requires study and questions. We talked about this a little bit. Two things, guys, here. Study where God desires your wife to be. Number one, practically what should you do? Study where God desires your wife to be. And number two, I'll let you fill in the blank there. Study where your wife currently is. Okay, so number one, this is under Roman numeral two. This kind of love requires study and questions. Number one under that, study where God desires your wife to be. And then number two, study where your wife currently is. Now let's talk about study where God desires your wife to be. Guys, do you know what scripture says concerning your wife just that she's a Christian? 
She's a Christian. What is God's design for your wife as a Christian woman? Do you know what scripture says concerning the fact that she is she's a woman with a biblical role in your marriage, in your family, and in the church? Do you know what God says your wife must be, where she must be at in regards to just being a woman who is a Christian? She has certain roles. Do you know what those roles are? As a mother, as a wife. That's the destination that God has set for her. You have to be thinking, what does God desire for her? And you know what you have to be really careful of is that you don't put your wife in your frame of thinking on a different path towards something that actually is in conflict with what God wants for her. And I would encourage you to go back to our build message on Titus 2 because that's the one where you can understand where where God wants your wife to be. As a young wife, a young mom, a young woman in the church, and or as one who's going to become an older woman who already is an older woman in the church. That's what you have to be saying. Look, it's not enough that you just know what God wants for you as a Christian man. You, being married, must know what God wants for a Christian woman. Another Christian is under your care, but she's a woman, and God has certain roles for her defined in your family, in your marriage, and in the church, and you need to know what they are. You can't be satisfied to just know what God wants for you. And then you study where your wife currently is, because she's just like you. You know where God wants you to be, but you're not there yet. You're on your way, hopefully, right? That's the goal, is every day you're closing the gap between the position he put you in and made you to be and where you actually are in practice. You're trying to close the gap, and so is she. So where is your wife currently? Where is she just as a Christian? Where is she as a Christian woman with roles? What is her understanding? You have to be the shepherd who's going to go down, stand where she is, and take steps with her. You are not a cattle driver. You don't get behind her with a whip and start yelling loud and seeing if she'll get moving. You don't stand up on the hill and whistle down at her and say, What are you doing down there? Get up here! You shepherd. You go stand by where she is. You have to know where she currently is. You probably need to ask her questions so you understand where she currently is. That's how you'll find out. Observe her, ask questions about where she is, and then go stand where she is and help her make steps away from that. Number three, this kind of love requires planning. This, this, two, two points here. Don't be fooled and don't be foiled. Okay? Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by what? Don't be fooled thinking that this kind of love just happens. That you will see everything you need to know about your wife. You will be cross-centered. You'll be God-centered. You'll be holiness-aiming. You'll be husband-initiative. You'll be all you know, nurturing-absorbed. And you'll know exactly where she is, where God wants her to be. Because you're alive, and therefore you know it. Or because you're reading your Bible, you know it. I mean, if you're like me, you have to discipline yourself to know these things. This kind of loving leadership, it's not, it's not impossible, but it's, it's, it's got some complexities to it. It takes some study. And the goal that God has for your wife is too lofty for you to just go into each day assuming that, yeah, I, I, I know where this is at. Never assume. Here's the tricky part. I find this for myself that... I'm making there's such a big impact being I think being made on so many other people. My wife must be okay also then. 
as your ministry to other people grows, you should not equate that because I see other people being impacted by my ministry that I'm doing in small group or in next generation ministries, student ministries, wherever I'm serving, I'm making an impact over there. You should not assume that that means you can put an equal mark where your wife is, that she therefore also is being as impacted. It's just, it's a whole other animal. This is why there's discipline one, discipline two, and discipline three. You have to separate them to focus on them, and you have to think sequentially in the right order of them. So don't be foiled. You're going to have to plan, guys. And I love what C.J. Mahaney says, what he does. He picks a regular time each week to think about where God desires his wife to be, and then he plots practically how to be the kind of leader that he needs to be just for that week. And he's going to make some, figure out how to make some steps. I think that's really good. If you can sit down and plan, think about what you saw this last week in your life. I think it was Lee Iacocca who said, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. Yeah, I mean, Rick made it famous. How many of you plan your daily schedule each week? How many of you plan for your work to prosper at work in business? How many of you plan even your play that you do? How many of you plan your exercise that you're going to do? How many of you just let your husbanding happen? What happens, what would happen if you just let your work happen? You get fired. Can't let our husbanding happen. It's a plan. Number four, let's talk about practical across a bunch of categories. Um, Number one is essentially what we've been talking about. You want to You want to think spiritually about your wife, biblically, theologically. You want to think about her spiritual disciplines. You want to think about her growth and godly character. You want to think about how she is serving in the body of Christ. And that's going to require you guys to push pause on your life. It's going to cause you to sacrifice some time to slow down to find out how she's doing and what she's doing. You need to find out where she feels strong. You need to find out where she feels weak. You need to ask her the question, how do you think I can help you, honey? What could I do to help you? What is your wife reading in the Bible and outside of the Bible? Is there something else she should be reading because of where she's at? Some of your wives are such disciplined creatures of habit that they just she's reading through numbers right now because that's where her reading plan has her. But she needs maybe some to see some other things also in God's word that maybe numbers might not lead her to. She might need some comfort. She might need some something that she's not going to get there. Tell her the numbers will be waiting for her when she comes back. Help her to read the Psalms. Read the Psalms with her. Um, sometimes she, she may need some help looking at some other things. What is your wife praying for? Do you know how your wife is dealing with her own sin? She's just kind of sweeping it under the rug and I'm just moving on. Is, she, is it piling up like a big burden that she feels that she has to carry and she has to do penance for before God? I know none of us would ever do that, but is she doing that and feeling the weight of of her own sin? Or is she preaching the gospel well to herself? Do you know? Do you know how she is responding to your children's sin against her? 
Do you know how she's responding to your sin against her? Spiritually, think these ways, okay? Number two, relationships with the children, if you have any yet. Um, which relationships with your children are that she has are, are tense and bumpy right now? You'll go through this. If you have more than one, even if you have one child, there's going to be times where the relationship is going to get bumpy for your wife and one of your kids. Uh, it could be tense. Do you know where that's happening? Where is the relationship that's really strong? Where do you think God wants the relationship to go between your wife and your child? How can you lead and serve in such a way to help the relationship get to where it needs to be? Kim and I talk about this a lot of times. When she tells me she's having struggles with one of the kids, I'll, I'll think, okay, when I spend time with that child alone, what can I do with him or her so that it's going to help you, honey? So I look to spend one-on-one -on -one time, and guess what I do with my, my son or my daughter? How's it going with your mom right now? Yeah. You know, you have these conversations and you talk about that with them. Um, you're also at times going to need to help humble, help your wife to humble herself to ask for your child's forgiveness. Because your wife will sin against your kids. And you might see it before she does. And it might be going on right in front of you and you might just need to step into the room and Take her gently by the hand and say, you, why don't we walk over here? Let's go for a little walk. And you just walk to the other side of the house and you tell the kids, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And just rescue your wife out of what she's doing. But do it in a gentle way and, and take her aside and help her and, and just say, well, how, you, how do you feel it's going in your heart right now? Here's what I see. Is there anything that I can help with in this and whatever? But you're going to need to be thinking about your wife's relationship with the kids. Number three, her relationship with parents and in-laws. This might change over time. You shouldn't think. Don't be surprised if you see her relationship with her mom changing. Her relationship with her dad. Her relationship with your mom. Your dad. Those things will be fluid and they'll shift and they'll move. And they'll, For ten years they could be great. And then you might have a ten year run where it's tough. So you need to be aware of how she's doing. Do you need to facilitate a relationship uh, with your wife and your side, her side? Do you need to be a buffer between your wife and some parents? Do you need to be, um, I saw the um, Israelites are, are going to maybe implement the Iron Dome because they're getting rockets coming in from Gaza right now and Netanyahu they have a, a missile shield that they call the Iron Dome. You need to become the Iron Dome sometimes for your wife and protect her from all that's coming. It's not always going to be that way, maybe. But you need to know if it needs to be that. And if you're, who's going to be that? Don't look at your 8-year-old son and say, Son, be the Iron Dome to protect your mom. That's you. You get to be that. There might be times that you actually need to get out of the way of a relationship that your wife has with the parent. Hers, yours. Because you're the one causing problems. So you need to be aware and thinking of these things. And you might actually have to help your, your wife humble herself to seek forgiveness sometimes because she's going to sin against her mom and she's going to sin against her dad and she's going to sin against your mom and your dad. And you might have to help her at times to humble herself to do that. Friendships, number four. Your wife will be um, uh, 
I don't know what you're like, guys, and I don't know if this is a total guy thing or not, but um, for us, relationships come into our lives with, and we there's there's guys that come into our lives and we come into their lives, and man, we are we are like tight for I don't know like four years, and then it changes, and then we're, we like don't see each other anymore, and I don't lose any sleep over it. It's just you know it's not that, that something horrible happened. It's just life changed and. I don't sit there and contemplate what happened. Did I do something? Did I say something? No, our paths came together and they, they crossed. They, they left. And your, your wife may not be that way. She may be in the process of, a, of God separating a relationship, not because of anything she did sinfully or that the friend did sinfully. It's just life is changing and your wife doesn't handle it the same way as you. And you can't just look at her and expect her to have a suck it up attitude. This is what happens. Shepherd her. Find out what's going on. Um, relationships will change for your wife in ways that she may not like. Um, it may be hard for her to understand. We're, we're about, in, in regards to um, relationships with, with other women, the Bible says that she needs to have a, a good, Titus 2 says she needs to have good relationships with other women. Does she feel free from you to be able to have that? Does she feel like that's something that you want for her? See, because you're thinking God-centered. I want my wife to have what God would have for her, and relationships with other women is really important. Um, what about friendship evangelism? Does she have any friends where she's sharing the gospel with? Do you know that? Ask questions. Number five, her fears, disappointments, hopes, and dreams. Your wife is going to change over the years, too. She's going to mature in some really wonderful ways, and you're going to watch some fears evaporate in her life. And then you're going to watch your wife in other ways grow, and where she never had fears and anxieties, you're going to watch them creep in. Because she's going to change. She's going to change the way she looks changes, the way that she perceives herself before others is going to change, and you may need to really be aware of that, and she's, she's changing. Dreams that she had for a long time, she may give up on, or hopes that she had, she may give up on, and she may get discouraged about that, depressed about that a little bit. You need to know your wife. You need to ask questions. You need to be aware of these things. Her temptations. These actually will change over time. When, she, when you first got married, she was tempted by one set of, uh, maybe in one arena of life, and by the time you've been married a few years, she might not be tempted by those things anymore. But now it's something different. Do you know? You need to know. And when she is facing temptation, how do you know what she's doing with the grace realities of the gospel? How do you know if she's, how she's fighting with her temptation? And you know there's going to be times when she feels so, so incredibly weak and fragile in the face of her temptation. Do you know what she needs from you right then? She needs for you to step in and she needs to take shade under your confidence in the power of the gospel. Not your confidence in her. Your confidence in the power of the gospel. She needs to be under the leadership of a man and take shade under my God is powerful and his gospel is powerful. And honey, I'm not afraid for us in your weakness right now or even in my weakness to come and, and let's go back to the power of the gospel. Let's look. Be that man to her. You can only be that man if that's who you are anyway. You've got to be working on these things yourself. In conversations... Number seven, coming home and your wife knows that you had a big day and you had a big stuff going on and she says, so, how did it go? Fine. That's not going to help your wife. And how many of you have a commute home, a little bit of a commute? 
even if it's just 10, 15 minutes. Okay, you got that? I encourage you that your, your, your drive home becomes your preparation for home, at least, if not before then. Turn the radio off, turn your music off, put your phone away, just, and just think, okay, I'm going to go step into a house with my precious wife and kids, whatever else is going on, and um, she's going to want to talk. I'm burned out. I don't think I can have another conversation. God, I need your help. Please help me to have one more really, really good, maybe my best conversation today. Um, an opportunity for God to show his power in your weakness. But I want to encourage you guys to die to your conversation style. To find out what, if your wife's conversation style is not sinful, go there. <laughs> go there. And then when you're hanging with the guys, have your conversation style. Okay? Plead with God to give you a heart for her conversation style. Okay? One of the things that you can do is um, view your day in such a way like um, she was supposed to be with you. The plan all along was that she was going to be with you through everything you did. But something came up and she can't go. If you walk through the events of your day, your work, your whatever it is that you do, and with the mindset that my wife was supposed to be here but she can't, then you will go home thinking, you'll look through all of those events a little differently. You'll look through them through her eyes, you'll look through them through her interests, her, what, what piques her attention and gets her attention. You'll think about that and you'll be able to rehearse on the way home what those things are, go over them again, and you will have a much different conversation with your wife than you did if you just, fine. Okay? Do whatever is helpful for you. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes... Um, Sometimes a TV can actually be a distraction to conversation. Sometimes your laptop open while you're trying to have a con Sometimes that can actually be a distraction. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. You might want to just turn it off. I, look, and I, this is not about TV watching. This is about loving your wife. Um, when you constantly have something going on, and I know some of you guys are multitaskers and you're self-deceived, you're not. But you can do a lot of things at once and there can be noise on. But I'll tell you what, if your wife feels like it's competing for her, your attention, then shut it off. Love your wife. I don't say shut your TV off because I have a chapter and verse on shutting your TV off. I say love your wife. Turn the TV off. Shut your computer off. Uh, dates and special occasions. Uh, where does she like to go? Do you know? What does she like to do? I once had um, Kim tell me, she goes, you know what? I like what we do. Can we go do something different? One of the things that we, it's, it, she likes doing it too, but it, she was kind of like feeling like, I, I don't know if I want to do that all the time. Go out to eat, talk, get caught up, go uh, to Barnes and Noble and sit and, and look at books together and stuff like that. That's like our, that was our default for many years. She doesn't want that as a default anymore. She wants something new. And the way that I found that out is I didn't, wasn't smart enough to ask her. I'm going to help you guys out. Ask her if she wants a new default. Because she had to tell me. Ask her if she wants to do something different. Um, some of you guys are amazing in spontaneity. I mean, you are just spontaneous guy. An idea comes in your wife. Um, first off, do you know, does your wife like that? 
Or do you just assume the whole world likes that because that's you? Okay, first off, find out, is that what your wife likes? And if she does like it, that's great. Some of you, you can't do anything unless you have it on the calendar a month ahead of time. And does your wife like that? And I'm not saying don't do it, but maybe you might need to break out of your shell a little bit and try. Mine is I need to get spontaneous. Um, I'm terrible at being spontaneous. I don't have any good ideas that just pop in my head at any time on stuff to do like that. Um, What about in your finances? Number nine. Does your wife feel safe? Does she feel protected? Does she feel nurtured? Does she feel cherished? Does she feel treasured under your headship in the finances? And look, if you have decided as a couple that she's the one who takes care of it um, and, and that's helpful for you guys, does she feel burdened by that because you're just so bad and now she has to do, she's not much better than you, but somebody's got to do it and it can't be you. Let's, why not have us change? Why not we change? Why not you change? But that she should feel, even in the area of finances, protected and, and cherished by you. Align. You're, you're, one of the things you can do, Kim and I did this this last year. We read a financial book together. Um, we read we read uh, Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover. That was really helpful for us. Not because we agree with everything that we we read in it, but it gave us. Lots to talk about, and it, and it actually provided us an opportunity to align ourselves and our thinking about how we wanted to view money at this stage in our life. Um, meal times, number ten. Oh, guys, can I, I? I will confess to you my very first meal with my wife in our apartment in Corona, California, off of the 91 at Lost Surface Club Drive, where the In and Out is down at the bottom of the hill. <laughs> All I'd ever known was living by myself for five years before that. We got off from the honeymoon, came home, and I, she made dinner, and she was so excited, and we sat down at our new table, and she set the food in front of us, and, and I prayed, and then I looked at my plate, and I grabbed my silverware, and I didn't look up, and I didn't say a word until it was all gone. <laughs> And then I remembered, there's somebody sitting at the table. I looked over at her. She hadn't even touched her silverware. And she was just looking at me. (laughs) Dumbfounded. I was like, oh yeah, you're here. (laughs) I didn't say that, but that's what she knew was going on. (laughs) What was that? Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's good. That's so good. Listen, your meal times should be some of the best times of your of, of your day, especially when you get kids. And I'll tell you what, it, it's tough when you're teaching little ones to eat and not throw their food, and and uh, um, and it's messy and it's busy. But I'll tell you what, never stop fighting for that, guys. Never stop fighting because you you know this. It happens in Christian families too much, unfortunately, but who sits together as a family and eats anymore? Guide your family in such a way that you get, whether, whether it's meal, I'm, I'm suggesting mealtime is a great time. If you find another time because of your life and, and whatever, be, before God, you guys are convinced what you're doing is, is great, find some time to be together. Mealtime can be a great time to do that. Um, I have never seen my kids laugh more at mealtimes. I've never seen us, um, I've seen them crying at the dinner table. 
Uh, there's been rebuke at the table. Everything happens at the table. It is a great time to be together. Try to construct your life in such a way that you can actually get home and, and be there with them. What does your wife think about it? What does she want? Um, what are her expectations for mealtime? Do you know what they are? Are they good expectations? How about honey-do lists, number 11? Specifically plan for whatever is reasonable that week. I encourage you just to take one week at a time and sit with your wife. It can be part of the things that you do as you're thinking about um, just how you need to serve your wife. Honey, what are the things this week that I need to work on uh, in the house? Um, well, the, the, the table leg underneath the kids' little table is, is loose. I need you to take care of that. One of the, the silverware drawer isn't working right. And um, if you can work on, uh, on this in regards to the truck and, and that, I look at that and I'll go, okay, the way that I see my week, I think I can do three of those things and not five or four. Which ones do you are most important to you? These. Sometimes she's going to put a, she'll make her honeydew list and she won't have an awareness of all that is entailed in something. She just sees an event needs to be finished and she doesn't understand preparation up to it or after it. And so you might need to help her understand that um, fixing a drawer might not be a five-minute thing. And her mind is, I just want it fixed. And your mind is a whole lot of other things that might have to happen and it could be this big and she's just thinking this. Help her. Talk about it together. Um, don't view it as an opportunity to conquer her, but to help her understand. Um, I'll say this in regards to our conversations too, saying the word conquer. Guys, don't try to conquer your wife in conversation. You guys aren't, um, okay, you're not opposing teams and one of you has to win. Okay? Um, Kim and I do this a lot in our conversations. We're tempted to, to fight against each other and conquer the other person. And when we, uh, we're aware of it, and what we try to do is, is we try to talk to one another and say, you know what, when we become aware that it's happening in the conversation, we say, you know, let's, let's start this over and let's talk like we're friends, like we actually like each other and we love each other. Remember? And I'll tell you what, it's, it's completely different, the conversation. But sometimes you know you just get you're just on your edge and you're just going and you know you're gonna you're right and you're convinced you're right and you're gonna persuade her. No, you're gonna conquer her. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna conquer her and just that doesn't go well. We call that heated fellowship. Heated fellowship. I'm gonna put your name by it, Tom. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Um, cleaning up after yourself, number 12. Does your wife follow you around throughout the house like you're one of the kids? Or like you're the dog picking up after you? I encourage you to do this. Go into one of the rooms today when you get home. Pick one. The office, the living room, the kitchen, the bedroom. Just pick one, drag your wife into it, and say, Honey, when you look in this room, what do you see? Because I guarantee you what you see is not what I see. And you ask her, what do you see? And she'll tell you, the windows have smudges all over them. Um, it needs to be vacuumed. It hasn't been dusted. 
and the pillows are all over the place, and um, there's two, three sets of shoes, and um, yeah, and I just haven't been able to get out yet. And you know what you see? Oh, there's an empty spot. Oh, look, there's a remote. <laughs> that's what that's what you and I see. And she sees it differently. And what you need to do is you need to get inside her mind. She's the one that God has given a role to be a worker at home. Okay? Your job is not to make the work for her to do. Your job is to help her just in any way that you can. Serve her. Ask her what she looks at. When she looks at the kitchen, what, what does she see? And, and help her with that. Um, how about your own appearance, number 13? Have you ever noticed um, the, different, um, the difference between the expectations you have for yourself before you go to work and before when you're, you're just going to be home all day? Have you ever noticed the difference in expectations for yourself? Before you go to work, you'll, uh, I mean, you've you got a whole regimen you go through because you've got to look a certain way, but you're going to be home all day today? All of a sudden, the expectation's different. And, and look, I'm not saying that... Um, I, here's, here's what's at the bottom of my mind. If, if your wife... If my wife every day sees me Monday to Friday, Sunday through Friday, if, if she sees me working hard to look a certain way to go and be in front of a whole bunch of other people throughout the day, but the day when I get to be home in front of her, I do something completely different. I'm concerned about what... I think that might say to her, communicate to her the conclusion she might draw. Um, can I just, just put that out there as something to think about? That um, I know you want to be comfortable. I, I know you've loved that T-shirt you're wearing since third grade. I know there's lots of memories wrapped up in it. And, um, <laughs> and uh, the sweats or whatever you, you know, that you do. But it might be interesting to, to watch and see what happens if you work on your appearance your smell, your, you know, in front of your wife. So, um, how about number 14, waking up and getting to bed? How does your, your wife like to wake up? I know how she gets woken up, um, especially if you have kids. But how does she like to wake up? Have you ever asked her? I mean, if she could have her dream day waking up, what would it look like? And I'm not asking because she'd probably want to sleep in a little bit and get some rest. But but on a, on a day where she, she has to get up, what would you like? Ask her. And then help her do it. Um, well, honey, you realize that means you're going to have to go to bed a little sooner. Yeah, help her. And how does she like to go to bed at night? Um, here, my wife, here's what I know about my wife. If she goes to bed knowing that the living room looks the way that it looks to her, and the kitchen looks the way that it looks to her, and the house is just not the way that it is, she won't fall asleep for probably two hours. Because in her mind, it, that's not the way it should be in her house. She doesn't want it to be that way. And there, were, there have been times where I would try to, for years, say, um, oh, honey, we'll, we'll get it in the morning. Let's, let's not worry about doing the dishes right now. Let's get them in the morning. I'll do them in the morning for you. And she'd be, and, and the times when she was like, okay, she was miserable. And, and so why not instead take the five to ten minutes and, and, and do it for her so she can go to bed and she's got nothing on her mind that, like that stuff. Okay? All right. Lastly, because you knew we had to talk about it at some point. 
just romance and sex, and I promise this is PG version, G rated even. Um, I'm pretty sure that if you are the man that you are, that and your wife is the woman that she is, I'm pretty sure that she doesn't think the same way you do on this. Because we are very different animals, so to speak, when it comes to romance and, and our, our sex lives. Um, and what you think is romantic is probably not what she thinks. I, what I'm saying is don't assume that what you think is romantic is what she thinks is romantic. Okay? Um, you're going to need to be really thoughtful about that. Um, and you know, man, I mean, we are just completely different in, in, in regards to, to visual stimulation. Um, I mean, we can go from zero to 100 miles an hour like that, and she doesn't. She gets there on a walk. She gets her on a walk. And so you're going to need to take her on a walk, romantically. And you're going to need to help her. And you're not going to, and, and the wrong thing would be to think that, well, the way that I get to 100 miles an hour is what I'll do for her, and she'll get there like that. No, she won't. No, not, not every woman's that way, but, but most of them are. Um, CJ has a great book. CJ Mahaney has a great book called um, Sex and Romance for the Glory of God. Is that, is that the right title? It's a one of those little books like this size. I encourage you guys to get it and read it. It is so helpful in just very good ways. And by the way, this is a, I don't know what many churches are doing in these days. And I mean, it's like the more graphic we can get about this, that we're actually helping the body. A, a pornified culture, Christians getting saved out of a pornified culture are now watching the churches getting as close to a pornified presentation of, of sex, and I don't know. Anyway, that's not in the notes, but what I appreciate about CJ's book is it's not that at all. It's just a godly man who loves the cross, and he loves his wife, and he's trying to think about how romance brings glory to God. One of the things he says in there is he says, touch her mind before you touch her body. Okay, touch her mind, touch her hopes, touch her fears, touch her desires before you touch her body. And guys, you're going to have to talk about sex over the years. You have to talk about it. And those may be difficult conversations for you. They may be no big deal to you at all. You, you, maybe it's just one of those things you and your wife can talk about, but you're going to need to have conversations about it. You're going to need to help each other understand each other when it comes to that. And I would really encourage you to not operate from what you saw from the world, okay, or what you even saw or knew from another woman at one point. Don't, don't bring that into your bedroom and put that up as a standard or pattern. Your wife is your wife. She's different. And you married her. And you marry the romance that you get with her, and you marry the sex that you get with her. Um, Scott, can I ask you a question? Please. Uh, I actually have a comment and a question on all the stuff you've been going through. Um, my comment would be probably because I'm different than most people with my schedule. Um, mm. All this stuff is 10 times harder mm. if you're not on a schedule where you both work that. Um, so for some of you guys that are young or whatever, don't know what your career is going to be, there's a chance you might be a 
police officer working nights, he might be someone who travels all, whatever it might be. Um, and I say that because it's really difficult. And I'll find myself at times going, I'm so busy and trying to make time for my wife and kids, but I'll never make time for myself. It's just because of the hours. So um, as, as you're going through all these points, I'm sitting here going meal time. Yeah, what is that? I sleep six hours during the afternoon and then go to work. And when, when is meal time? So I really have to make an effort on the weekends, other things, give up things. Um, so I just throw that out there in case Thank you. you don't get the eight to five job or whatever. Um, and the thing I wanted to touch on with uh, with the sex part, I was going to ask, um, really maybe throw it to, to the older guys. Um, in light of 1 Corinthians 7, um, and even for the, for the young guys that aren't even married, um, that whole area changes. Um, I know in my life, uh, my expectations are way different than my wives. And how do we keep from sinning and, and frustration when, when God warns us, obviously, and I don't want to take it to the wrong side of this, but we need to come together. Right. Because I know as a guy, the longer I'm away from my wife, the more my mind can drift, even if I have more attention than I have to. So my question is kind of, as marriages go 20, 30, 40, 50 years, um, maybe I just throw that out there. It's a good relationship. How do you stay godly when things maybe aren't going the way you'd like them to go? Tom, what do you think? Uh, you know, <laughs> good You know, probably intimacy in marriage is the one area where both the husband and wife, but we equally, uh, it's a matter of time to tell. And I need to be more concerned. And God just made it a lot of I need to be more concerned for what my spouse's needs are than mine are. And, and I'll tell you what, uh, they, for both of us, as you get older, from being younger, it changes. And you have to be in tune to, to uh, what the change is, what the season is. But I know for myself, I need to be more concerned with where my wife is. And she needs to be more concerned for your needs than her own. But if she's not, uh-huh. that right. then... That's the question I think I was asking. <laughs> Close in prayer. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting. I, I want to bring up this comment because uh, I'm sure close to 100% of you, and even for the single guys, this this is true. Uh, in your your relationship with the guys that you live with, even if you live alone, your relationship with those people. Scott went through these lists of 15 things, and I guarantee you, this percentage be really, really low. Where somebody would say. Didn't think, well, I really have a hard time talking about that with my wife. I definitely have a hard time talking about that with my wife. I definitely should never bring that up. You know, I've seen it where it could be finance, it could be intimacy, it could be your wife's fears and, and what her temptations are, and just trying to get her to open up to you. And, or you, 
I'm just certain many of you sat here today. I can never have that conversation with my wife. Let me encourage you, just like that path, and it's a path that we are on. Start with, and I'm even with your kids, and I'll speak to kids next if this is marriage, but speak of the evidences of God's grace that you see in their lives. When, when you see godly character being emulated in your spouse, point it out to her. I mean, instead of telling her, I have no jeans and this is the third time in a month that I haven't had clean clothes, talk about the faithfulness. Thank you for being so faithful that we got this, we did this. Instead of looking at how your need wasn't met, speak to, to how she's emulating God's character. When you see your wife being gracious to one of the kids or to her parents or to your parents, point out and help her see the evidences that you see in, of grace in her. And I, I guarantee you, as you grow in your marriage, these topics become easier and easier to talk about because of the level of trust that she knows that you are looking at and you see the evidences of God's grace. Because I'll tell you what, if you're the guy that has just beat up your wife on how she spent money, good luck trying to have that conversation. Yeah, yeah good, point. Get there. good point. But, but speak about how you're, you're so faithful how you budget and, and how you make the shopping dollar go so far to provide food for the family. Or whatever, clothing the kids. Guys, you need to be looking at the evidence of God's grace in your spouse. And let me go to kids because most of you have kids and many of you will have kids. If you want to be able to have a conversation about sex, about temptation, they need to know that you're a man that looks at the evidence of grace that you see in their lives. You're never going to get your child to open up to you if they think you're only going to bring them down. They need to know that you recognize God's grace being manifested in them. Because I'll tell you what, this list of 15 items, for the unregenerate man that's not grace-centered, this, this thing's overwhelming. That's good. That's good. Excellent. Dave, I appreciate you. You know, having had weird hours most of my adult life. I appreciate that because the reality is many of you probably know in the, the seasons that we have weird hours. Yeah. And praise God, you can divide. That's what it is. Yeah, and when your family's younger, you you are you have more flexibility in aligning them more with your schedule when it's weird like that. But when they get older, like you guys are in your season of life, they're on days yeah, only. I'd love to share a story with them. Sitting with my, at the time, she's now my 34-year-old daughter, she's 21, she's getting ready to get married, we're sitting there on the bed talking, and I am, God has just allowed me to see all of my shortcomings as a dad as I'm seeking and just having this conversation. And, and I, my schedule, frequently, while they were sleeping, I was out working Steve Carr. Well, we could have. So I'm talking to her, you know, just about how much I work. And I realized, you know, I, there was years that this was the one. And she sits there, and she says, Dad, all I remember is you were able to be here at my game. You were. 
perspective is so different in that gathering. But at the same time, as you realize this is hard, understanding the reality you might have to work, sometimes the way the kids see it, hey, I get home from school. Yeah, they do. That's home. And when they're sleeping, they don't realize really that they have to work. But it, it's kind of weird. And that was just kind of God's grace how he allowed me to interact with my kids. Yeah. Um, finishing up, I mean, you want to, in every way, you need to die to yourself in your romance and in your sex life. God made us very different. And the way that you uh, experience pleasure and the way she does is very different. And there is probably no greater area where you need to die to yourself than that area. And, um, but don't think, well, I just need to die to myself in the bedroom. You, earlier in the day, you need to die to yourself in the kitchen. Earlier in the day, you need to die to yourself in conversation. Earlier in the day, you need to die to yourself in your interaction with your family at mealtime. You need to be dying to yourself in those other ways. And that is the slow walk that your wife needs. Okay? To, to be on that slow walk. And lastly, number five, um, what would this love for your wife be? Look, it is a sobering love. It is a, a serious love. Um, it is sacrificial love. It is a love ultimately that you would die for your friend. That's serious. But what if your wife never sees you actually enjoying being married to her? She only just sees that, honey, I don't know. Hard to sacrifice and die to myself. Hebrews 12, verse 2. And we'll close with this. We need to be fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Joy and the cross. The difficult but divine love showed there goes together with joy. If Jesus could love at the cross and have joy at the same time for what it all meant, your sacrificial and your self-emptying love for your wife, it can be a joyful thing too. And the question that you might want to ask your wife is, is... Wife, do you see any sense of joy in my sacrifice for you? You know what? When she opens her Bible, she can see Jesus' joy in his cross. Can she see any joy, uh, joy in her, your sacrificial love for her? That would be a good question to think about. Guys, I do not present any of this to you as one who is this, equals this. Um, I am in process as much as you. Um, and I'm grateful to you guys' interaction and your questions you ask uh, and the things we get to talk about. I don't think I've had a year of build where there's been more interaction than this. Those of you who have been in it before can probably attest to that. Um, we fight to get to small group and don't. And so I, I apologize for that, especially for for those of you who 
uh, enjoy that aspect. And I, I think what I need to do, and what I'll try to make a commitment towards, uh, we won't be able to do it on April 9th, but we'll do it on the last three. Why don't, why don't we do small group first before we ever open our mouths? And then we can uh, do that. So work on your homework, the blue sheets together, okay? Um, there's not, yeah, don't do it on April 8th. And a, and a reminder that April 9th we'll be down at Barnes Hall, down at the other end of the campus, right? With all the ladies down there. And um, But we will have small group time at the end because they want to have that at the end. So we're planning in such a way that we'll go through the material and have time for that. Please do. On the first question, it asked you, uh, ask your wife or someone close to you or someone uh, in your life that you could do so you need to ask earlier on in this period of time. But uh, if your spouse says to you, uh, I don't know, take a chance and get into the and if she still says, I don't know, ask her if she thinks that you're approachable, that she feels that she can when she talks to you. That's good. Because I'll tell you what, uh, that's a possibility. put in their hands early on. If, if we have conversations with people, with our roommates, friends, our wives, and we say, honey, I would, I would really like, just like for you to be honest about how you feel, what you see in my life. And so I'd just like you to um, be ready to talk to me about that. Go ahead. Oh, I'll, I'll put it down. You know... Nobody feels very comfortable talking when we've had that kind of uh, given that impression. I've done that to my wife I don't know how many times. Honey, no, really, you don't seem to want to talk about this. Why? <laughs> Let me tell you why. And, and it's because you don't make it easy to have this conversation. Okay. So we can, we can work on that. I appreciate that. Say what? They're not for single guys. Um, 50 ways to love your wife. Yeah, you're probably not going to be able to uh, do that. Tom, do you have a recommendation on how you want the single guys to... Well, there's a, if you go down to the fourth point on the first page, from the questions a husband should ask, hand out, evaluate yourself, and consider how you treat others. Um, so you, you should be able to 